This is The Art Exchange, a podcast where I talk to young artists about the development of their practice and ideas. I'm Tilly Slate, your host. Hi, I'm here today with William McCrell. He lives and works in London, um, where much of the inspiration from his work comes from uh, such a large city in a bit of a state of flux. He works across mediums of photography, choreography, installations and many more, has recently had a solo exhibition at The Rider and has presented work at Art Basel with Gallery Kunzinger, if I'm saying that right. And he was the Florence Trust resident in London over 2016 to 2017. Um, So hi. Hello. So the first thing I want to talk to you a bit about is the notion of anxiety in relation to your work. Um, because I first saw your work really recently at the South London Gallery in an exhibition called Waiting Room that was all about anxiety and anticipation in London and in the, the present political climate. And so, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this notion of sort of the temporary nature of things in your work um, and the unpredictable, particularly in reference to Breaking a Line, the light installation that was in South London Gallery this November. Yeah, the anxiety point with that piece. It's interesting because originally the piece was done quite out of an aesthetic interest in the fact that the light bulbs in um, Breaking a Line are all in a natural state of collapse. They're all at the end of their lives, flickering and pulsing in a kind of quite haphazard and um, unknowingly when they're going to actually completely run out, blink out. And they're sort of these l- the long fluorescent lights yeah. you see in lots of offices exactly, and stuff. It's a yeah. very familiar sight to most yeah. people that live in London and big cities. Yeah, they're 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 the kind of fluorescent lights you get in in large shopping spaces, offices, industrial workspaces, and artist studios. More recently, I started to think about the relationship, especially of architecture, inhabitation, and urbanicity. And I was thinking a lot about how the bulb has come to resemble a passing of time and a passing of of occupying space. In fact, I was originally trying to find some working light bulbs and (laughs) I actually brought one back to the studio a long, long time ago, back in 2009 to the studio and there it was flickering and I was kind of mesmerized by watching this light in the dark, something that was usually so kind of irritating and annoying. So it kind of actually began as kind of an aesthetic interest and a kind of curiosity about what this light was doing and I hadn't really ever paid much attention to it because it was always something that something that you usually pass by or it's just like a bit annoying. So I decided to kind of, yeah, really work with that and, and work with this feeling of, of how the light could represent a passing and also a follow-on to the history of how that light is used. So I'm quite interested in obviously the kind of universal universal ownership of someone like Dan Flavin has over those kind of light bulbs. You know, whenever you think of a fluorescent light bulb, you would normally think of of the this American um, is he post well, minimalist American artist that was working at the same time as Donald Judd with kind of very much available materials in a very kind of architectural way and also about feeling and people a lot of the lights were in homage of or to friends of his or to people he'd met and I was kind of curious about something he wrote which was the the lamps will go out as they should no doubt I took that as a kind of nod to the idea that the light bulb was precarious and fragile also he was talking a bit about his art that you know wouldn't necessarily last forever even though I think what these pieces are quite unrelated maybe even to his own interests um, I think there's a kind of follow-up conversation I was looking to have with his his language and his history um, 
in terms of what is happening now, where we are having issues of space, issues of um, financial collapse, obviously a deep unsettling feeling of total annihilation of behavior to each other as humans. And I think for me, the light bulb has come to be a reference point for that sense of anxiety and fragility. Yeah, I think there is a lot of precariousness in modern life at the moment, and it's sort of particularly coming through in a lot of things like work um, employment legislation Mm. and zero hours contracts, Mm. but also wider political things and social issues that we've seen this year and last year in terms of hate crime and hate speech. So it is a bit of a, it's a flickering light time. Yeah, I would I agree mean, on that. This is definitely a sort of another thing I had to think about though after because it's it's also been interesting that this this work has been invited for exhibitions about these topics now and of course at the time when it was made it wasn't quite so in focus with those questions. So mm. it's interesting to also think that you know this piece has also been positioned within a certain angle on how it can be interpreted. So I think it's also a piece that has different interests I mean obviously when you put a piece of work next to anything else they start to have a conversation and they can have a conversation which is quite different to something being on its own Mm. so it was very interesting to bring the breaking line back into this South London Gallery event waiting room last week um, which I thought was you you guys did very well it was a very good event and I and I thought it was um, yeah it was very interesting to also open that piece to a dialogue with music and um, discussions and and the artist films that were part of that event. Yeah, yeah, so just for a bit of context, that was a one-day event in the South London Gallery, um, and it was about anxiety and anticipation and had three parts to it, so a series of four video works uh, that concentrated on that as a theme. William's light installation that was going sort of throughout the day, but um, not at the same time as the video works, and a panel discussion with James Messiah, Liv Little and Joanne Biggs um, and a DJ set from James Messiah at the end so you were able to see your installation not only in the day but in the night when there was sort of music on at the same time and all the lights were out uh, so it sort of it changed throughout the day I, I came mm. back a few times and saw it and I know you did too um, but yeah I was just wondering on this point where you were saying it, it's now come into the conversation a lot more and people are asking you to show these works how like as an artist how do you feel about that um, um, that they're sort of being used for specific, not genders, but specific content. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about it a lot at the moment. I mean, I think um, I've been asked by a number of people that I, I didn't actually agree to, to, to show it with because I felt that it needs to be shown in a context that is sensitive to both the work and then, you know, whether I feel that the conversation that the work is going to have makes, you know, like there is something exciting that's going to come from that conversation but I think it does have a a strong sense of mortality and a kind of memorial sense to the piece but what I really enjoyed with the South London Gallery event was that when the music came on it kind of took the work into a totally different context and it's something that I've actually been thinking about slightly prior to putting it up in the South London Gallery what would it be like to have it orchestrated or how would it be to have a kind of conversation with music but probably live I think I'm always curious about the sort of bodily contact the dying of the light is a lot about like the breath of light and the character of each bulb that was flickering at a different speed and 
groaning at a different time and they they kind of almost take on characters and personalities like musicians or people do that are performing the instrument or um singing you know the way that the vocals and people exhale breath and emotion so there's it's i'm i'm happy to show it in in a space which i believe has an and a curated dialogue that has a sensitivity with the work but it doesn't need to go everywhere and have lots of conversations it needs to go to good spaces that really yeah. care for the work so for me it's quite a personal piece so you know i need to look after yeah <laughs> and <laughs> also the bulbs it. are finite so you know every time the bulbs go out uh to a space to be installed there's there's always a certain number that i have left because then i have to try to get hold of them but that the bulbs you know um I collect them from industrial workspaces and studios across the city that have had them piling up in cupboards where um, they haven't recycled them um, because of certain business rates that they have to pay. And so they're very happy when I contacted them saying, do you have any old dead bulbs? <laughs> they were like, yeah, we've got about 500. And I uh, phoned uh, up ASC Studios. And so they even now bring me round a van load and ask me if they want any more. <laughs> so uh, you're sort of performing a service. To yeah, yeah. So the bulbs are also institutions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the bulbs kind of have this, you know, there's this whole story about how the bulb comes to be this precious object in an exhibition. That it comes from being salvaged from, a, you know, something that is seen as redundant and, and uh, wants to be thrown out. Um, so it kind of has this life cycle. Yeah, it's interesting because also you come to the bulb at the point of the life cycle where it's already sort of failing and mm. already dying a bit mm. so you don't get to see it's i guess life as a light bulb yeah no um, no and just sort of take yeah. care of it in its old age i get when i get them all into the studio there might be 200 and probably only about 30 or 40 will be actually flickering some of them will already be dead some of them will be working too well that they won't start flickering so there's this kind of hierarchy <laughs> so you have a filing system <laughs> yeah yeah and then different colors because some of them do very strange things you know they'll flicker and then they'll suddenly come on pink or blue um, even if they're white light um, oh. and I think it's something to do with the gas inside um, but it's kind of curious that they um, yeah they have very unusually different lives <laughs> and so that's kind of how it moved into then being the interruption piece like in with the body performer or um, yes. other pieces so know. we i've seen the breaking a line okay. one which is sort of three end to e three or four end to end yeah, and they're six. all flickering in yeah. their own was it six yeah yeah oh God, it was larger <laughs> than i thought yeah of course because it took up that whole wall space yeah. Yeah. um so they're end to end and each doing their own thing basically um mm. but you have several other sort of iterations of light bulb works so there's the convulsive repulse one, mm -hmm. which is two horizontal stacks. Yeah. Um, and then you have ones where there are actual people involved with the work as well. I wonder if you could talk a bit about those yeah. and what the difference is between um, adding that extra layer onto it. The interruption piece is, I guess, quite a delicate work where a performer lays upon a um, perspex a box, like a shelf that is attached to the wall. Um, usually it's attached in a way that looks like the actually the shelf is floating, almost kind of like quite... It's all kind of quite complicatedly screwed right in through a, uh, a wall um, with no kind of structure to hold it from the front. The performer harmonizes their body, listening and feeling the sensation of the bulb that is vibrating inside the shelf. 
the performer is kind of left to interpret that how they feel. They're not trying to just translate the the light, but they're also trying to kind of think about how is their body feeling. And it's it's a lot about listening to your own sense of touch and contact um, with the material. I think most interestingly, it was shown in Krinzinger Project. It was a duo interruption duo piece. So there were two performers that had their heads back to back, couldn't see each other, and um, different heights on the wall, and performed a conversation of ingesting and excreting almost this sound that they felt go through their body from the from the light. Um, so the light bulbs themselves were making sort of what sounds were they? Yeah, they're kind of like um, pinging sounds, but then also the kind of quite like kind of groaning as they kind of flickered and then got more and more worn and 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 they have um sort of rhythms it sounds like a kind of electrical quite harsh sound but then it sometimes it's kind of delicate it's got this incredible strange range of emotions it's almost like um it's sort of conversation in itself yeah it's quite a different piece to convulsive repulse which is made of 31 flickering lights and interestingly enough it's actually in the shape of an england flag um, so there's like um, oh. a light that goes up the middle and uh, three red filters, but the, pe- the it's only something that you can see when it's off. So what happens with that piece is that um, it's dormant, lying in the gallery, and it's connected to a sensor. And then as the person approaches the piece, it starts to um, light up and almost splutter light and sound at mm. the audience. And it's this very, very quite intimidating because it's got all the cables drooping down to the floor and all the piles of plugs that they're wired to. So it sort of looks like a sort of electrical experiment. Yeah, I guess especially if it like gears up mm. as you walk towards it. Mm. There's sort of an interesting thing there about almost electrical labour, yes, that its last yeah. spluttering things are activated by you being there and it's sort of forced to come alive for yes. you. Yes, it's this it's activation exactly by the audience and, and, and then really becoming part of the work when they stop moving then the piece goes back to um goes back to silence um and it's quite a strong difference and change from that silence to that very quite loud and flashing light the piece though it's shaped in that flag and it's interesting that you said that you didn't kind of notice that it was because that that is also because it's about um about how it fragments when it becomes lit. So when it becomes lit, you can't really see what it is, if it's a flag or not, or if it's something, just uh, an object. And I, that's what I liked about it. I liked that this I, the piece for me is about this sense of breaking down a kind of national identity. It's also about um, something that's much more global. It's when it ruptures and starts spluttering and light and sound. It's something that hits you quite hard inside. It's something that made me want to think about those conversations that I had going on Trump's presidency, um, Brexit, but a lot of lot of much greater conversations about really again going back to the point of the precariousness um, of of the humankind that I think at the moment has really been brought into focus over the last um, year and a half, two years. But you could feel that it was bubbling before. So interestingly enough, I actually had planned to make that piece, and I had it all sketched out, kind of pre all those things that actually became real reality. Um, pre the horror year. But it was in 2015 that I really felt something was coming. You could feel it in the air. You could feel, um, you could, f- I don't know. There, there was something. The lid was coming off on all these things, and and it was scary. And I, I, um, this was just a way of kind of trying to exercise that spirit that I, I found very hard to put into words or to talk about, um, and something that kind of 
angered me and frustrated me, but something that I wanted to put out as a work. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> then that the image of the English flag mm. isn't always seen then. Mm. Because it, I guess, so when it's turned off, you can see it quite clearly. Mm. Is that, mm. And then when it's turned on, maybe if you've seen it before, you kind of are seeing what you want to see mm. in it, which is quite an interesting thing to do with an image that has so much attached to it, mm. really, um, especially now that it's become a bit of a nationalist symbol. Yeah, the piece, it wasn't pointing a finger at who was right or wrong in this conversation. And, and it was just merely looking, it was looking more as a starting point at the fact that uh, we no longer seem to really have discussions um, globally. We shout and it's a lot about loud shoutingness and people wanting to put their point of view in a very kind of monochrome and way and people trying to reinforce their boundaries. I think everybody from whatever point of view is feeling anxious and, and, and angry and slightly f confused and frustrated. And that piece for me was about trying to put something in a visual context that kind of um, puts, that as a com puts that piece in a point of a conversation. Um, that it's about trying to connect and, and have a dialogue with um, all kinds of people that come to look at that piece. Uh, so you've spoken a bit about, you said just now, they people don't talk anymore, they shout. And you've said to me before something about how language isn't really enough anymore. It sort of failed in some sort of way that you're interested in that idea, um, which I obviously find very interesting because mm. this is sort of part of my practice and I'm trying to work out how much we can convey with language, mm. uh, which is why I run this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about then your performance works and how that relates because you use a lot of the body in your performances to try and mm. illustrate things and I wonder if there's some sort of relationship between this cautiousness around language mm. and how that might translate to your performance or if it does <laughs> yeah I think I think language um, I think language communication and the body these these kind of three aspects of the practice um, are kind of yeah, they're kind of it's root. All the work is rooted in this, um, in in well, starting from the body. Um, I've always kind of considered. I mean, er early works looked at what was the language of um, candle power. I had a I've had a pocket torch um, many years ago in my studio that called itself a thousand candle power, and so I wanted to actually mm -hmm. see and put that material in um, in a, in a real see what a real really what a thousand candles would look like and what they would do um and i mean i've moved away from being of that kind of literalness now and um but i was kind of, those kind of works uh, were very important experiments at the beginning of kind of building this language that i'm trying to work with um but i'm very interested in how how for example with that piece i tried to light a thousand candles and in the process you get to the end and one would always blow out. Um, it was always impossible to actually have this thing complete. And I think that there's incompleteness to how we have to accept that that's okay. It, it's kind of framed its own sense of failure. I think that failure can also be constructed into a work. So a work can be doomed to fail almost on purpose by the artist. I'm still very interested in how language written and spoken has limitations um, and I think has more recently become so deceptive um, in terms of what we trust. I've had I've had always a curiosity with how language constructs the visual. 
more recently I've been doing work a work a series called lip sync um which is where I mouth um uh, passages sometimes phrases sometimes actions um which are me actually mouthing words in lipstick onto walls or onto paper um sometimes they look they become more like a musical score or a, or a trace but these pieces have become often about my arrival into a space or um just the body the, the the touch and index of the body with words and with languages where i feel like the word itself has kind of it's too limited for what i'm um trying to put in the work i think so and i think that's kind of fed into say how i use the lights the light the light uh, going back to the the flickering light piece it's all about um that that kind of fragile momentary connection that i think the human body is so much about it so we have so many different emotions all the time all the day and how we feel how we respond to other people how we are affected by traveling um to work or coming to meet a friend or all these different kinds of contact there there are all these kind of ways to um to work with materials that can talk about those things in ways that language just very little language can get get close to um you must find it very difficult to title your works then because how how do you deal with that in terms of you've broken away so much from the idea of language but then you need to somehow like come up with some language term to describe what you're doing it's such a c- complex relationship um, that yeah uh, the title just comes i mean um recently um when i was on residency in vienna crimsing a projector the the gallery has been running uh, 48 years 50 years i think they pioneered um performance art uh in terms of giving viennese actionists a platform inviting one of the first galleries to invite paul mccarthy to work um in in europe um obviously marina abramovich is one of their major artists so i was quite kind of <laughs> i braced to enter into this um incredible yes. history if you're in a space like this you cannot mm. um make work without thinking about this this context it was quite incredible because also when you come in the front of this residency space there's a big um quite a solid glass door every time you tried to shut it it almost felt like the whole glass was going to crash down <laughs> and this was one of the first pieces i ended up making because the door was very very like large heavy but fragile and i thought this is also the point of entrance of where everything is going to happen here because you lived in this space you had the archive there you had the gallery space and you had the studio where you worked um, so there's no way to avoid the door yeah, as well yeah <laughs> so so the door became a kind of point to think of and i noticed that when i opened and closed it very slowly there was um the hinges were very very um rough and kind of squeaky but when i opened and closed it very very slowly and there actually became a whole kind of symphony of sound within this hinge and this became a sound piece that i titled door for a day and um i don't know where that how that title just kind of came into my head but for me the explanation that kind of finally led to your answer <laughs> getting <laughs> to you getting an answer it was important because for me door for a day was also about this point of chance for a day of having this opportunity to come to vienna and, and work in this space was all about almost um embracing this door coming in feeling like excited but very nervous and how like the first point was 
getting through that door. I think titles kind of just come through experiences with spaces. So it's often about the performance piece, like the body on the light bulb, that's it called interruption because there's an interruption with the light that is flickering, but there's also an interruption with being confronted by a body in a space. There is also the person who's trying to focus on this very difficult thing that is very improvised. There's no kind of um, plan. Um, and so I, f I, and I got this feeling that in life we are constantly interrupted. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think often the best works are just people revealing what is already there because there's so much. Actually, we don't need to even add that much. The light bulb is in existence already. It's just something that we never pay attention to. Or like more recently, I've been collecting the music when I'm put on the phone, phoning a company and then they put me on hold. I've, I don't want to just lose that time. So I've started recording all my calls and I have now a catalogue of hold-up music, which is all my conversations while I'm waiting uh, to get through to someone on the telephone. They're all titled from EDF Energy or Hackney Council or, oh you know, uh, Barclays Bank Loan Company. And the pieces that they've chosen yeah. to represent them as a company while they're annoying their customers. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, and in, a way, in a way I've kind of wanted to salvage that time back. I want that, I, I don't want, I want that time to be precious. So something that I did with that sound was actually to press it onto a, a vinyl because <laughs> I like the feeling of making this time somehow held in a in a yeah, in something I could see yeah yeah rather than just this totally voided um unknowing how long you're suspended there for um but what I do with this piece called hold up which is also the title of the exhibition that was at the rider in May this year um um is is have the record player playing in a space but then in another room have a tiny little hole that comes through a wall that you go close to um, uh, and the sound comes through there so there's this also detachment about how you experience it as an object. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to talk about two more works quickly. Um, one in, re in relation to language again is the north-south piece. So it's a northerner and a southerner uh, facing directly sort of almost nose to nose at some points I think nose to nose uh, taking turns to say north or south depending on which one they are to each other but quite often quite aggressively or responsively and it's again taking just these two words but really there is so much more going on in that because you can see all of the reactions and the sort of interactions between them and responses and stuff um, and this is this is actually quite a long time ago. This was from 2012, but I think it still sort of resonates quite well. Just noticing everything <laughs> about them. Okay, yeah. Um, it came about through. Well, first of all, I was travelling to the north, and I liked travelling up the M1 and seeing the north. The north, yeah. And it's and very it was like spelled out in that. capitals. And then when we came back from this trip, it was like the south, and it was like you were sort of entering a kind of very much another place. I don't know. It was kind of, I hadn't seen that before. And uh, and it just stuck, it stuck with me. And then I returned back to London. I was sitting with these um, these two friends, Lloyd and Darren, and uh, and they were kind of bickering about cliches, conversations. Yeah. But they're very good friends and they're kind of like, almost were talking as well about themselves because, you know, one of them is from the North, one of them is from 
South. And so it was interesting that the more they laughed about these these differences, that their accents started to become more... Uh, Amplified. Yeah, or... yeah. So, And I was kind of noting, <laughs> noticing this in a conversation that they were having. And, and as they kind of became more comfortable with, like, stating their point of view then yeah their their own more localized accent started to really come out especially when they laughed or they were kind of really like going for it in terms of their conversation and then i thought oh, i wonder if they would ever agree to being in some kind of dialogue that i that i set up and and they're not at all art you know which i loved about that they were just it was just like a really honest discussion between two friends and mm. and that for me is always I love these kind. You know, for me, I like to work with people who are just talking about life and and experiencing that in any form. That it doesn't have to ever be constructed in in some kind of um, critique, dialogue. You know, um, I like that it was, it was just kind of very free. I said to them that I'd like to kind of limit the language down to just north and south, those two words. But you could do whatever you wanted with however you wanted to do it. But you would just say the word to each other in a kind of a ping ponging sort of set up um, but then it was interesting because as they did the they were quite nervous about the recording so had to have a few drinks before just to kind <laughs> of they were, so they were less, less self-conscious because not only were they having not only were they facing each other uh, like you said only a couple of centimeters away from each other they also had this camera you know stuck in front of them yeah which if you're not used to is yeah. a very scary thing so and they were also they kind of played with that language which I thought was going to be quite difficult because I thought it would be quite kind of contained but one of them goes for about to say north and then he kind of goes almost like misses the word on purpose you know and, <laughs> and like to kind of like surprise the other one so that it starts as you say to become all about the containment of what's inside the body and that emotion and then they really go for it and they let it all out and there's this kind of yeah it's quite intense yeah, mm, yeah. it's quite like uneasy yeah. but then satisfying mm. to watch because yeah. yeah, there is a lot going on in it, yeah. um, and it's interesting that I had that sort of beginning period that wasn't officially part of the work when you were part of that conversation yeah. and just observing them talk about these things. And you said earlier that they had a, an aftermath as well. <laughs> um, that one of the guys works in IT and was yeah, putting together yeah, the website. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, that was just a surprise. The, the work was being uploaded to a gallery website. And yeah, he works in IT, the, the guy who was in the south of the performance. Because the colleague of the, the south guy on the mm. right, his colleague came in to, um, to check that it was all going well on the uploading of the onto the gallery and found uh, Darren there shouting, South, South. Darren, what were you doing in this <laughs> video? I didn't know you did like <laughs> some kind of live art thing. And oh he was like, God. oh yeah, no, I did it. So that was kind of that was kind of interesting that it also fed back into the daily routines of, you know, people doing their jobs and going back to the workspace and, and a, a, you know, a video performance piece into kind of a total shock for a person who has never seen his friend or work <laughs> friend in a such a distort uh, sense of being yeah yeah I had a serious <laughs> afterlife as a work um and then just quickly I'd like to talk a about a completely different type mm -hmm. of work actually not completely different it's still quite performative mm -hmm. which is the human condition series mm -hmm. um and this is a series of quite a few different works that originally started as photographs and then you've been scratching out the hair in them. And it, are they lithographs? Um, 
Yeah, they uh, they are well. They're, they're digital photographs. Um, they then use an etching needle that um, I scratch the hairs one by one out of the photograph. Mm. It's like sort of painstaking, but kind of addictive way of reworking my language with photography. Actually, and I mean the series which is ongoing. Um, they're all views into the back of people's heads or undersides of their neck or armpits. They're always places that are kind of have a sense of sort of being quite vulnerable, kind of shot from behind or below and up. At first, a little bit unclear what, what part of the body you're necessarily even looking at. They started from a sense of, um, again, talking about this sort of urban congested closeness, contact with people, um, to being like in the back of someone's hair on like the tube or trying to avoid that kind of slightly awkward eye contact that you have <laughs> when you're in those situations and in the end kind of being stuck right behind somebody and I kind of started thinking one time on the way home this sense of being like an ant in someone's head crawling or kind of mapping then I started thinking a lot about how hair this part of the body is something that is something that we that we grow that we lose that changes so often um and combined with that feeling of looking at portraiture but then also kind of documenting these parts of the body that cannot be seen by the person who's in the photograph so it's always these almost Hitchcockian sort of views you kind of come right into close up into someone's head and for me that becomes another world in there like a part of the head that is kind of in so much movement and uh, so there are so many bits to it that mm. you sort of wouldn't Unless you're, as as the artist, sort of scratching them out one by one, you wouldn't know necessarily about other people's hair. Yeah. You sort of are very familiar with your own strands yeah, of yeah. hair that get everywhere and whatever. Yeah. But the stranger's hair on the tube you're suddenly confronted with and it's uncomfortable yeah. in its multiplicity and how many hairs there are getting up in your face or whatever. Yeah, and it's it's also about this idea of, of, the, of the image that is being cut out. So in each photograph... There are two things, really. There's the image that is being disrupted kind of quite aggressively, really. If you think about the idea of cutting into a photograph, it's a sort of not very pleasant idea. Mm, it has quite a legacy, doesn't it? Yeah. Sort of censorship as well. Yeah, and I, I kind of was curious about how, as I scratched um, the photograph, it actually weirdly highlighted the hair even more. So mm. it was quite strange. In this absence, the hair became even more uh, in focus. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for, for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Um, images and videos of William's work can be found on his website, williammcrell.com, and he has a Vimeo page. Um, and as ever, more uh, images of the works will be found on my website too, tillyslight.com. So yeah, thank you very much. The theme music is by The 52s and the cover design is by Samina Popescu. Find out more information on tvslide.com forward slash art exchange. <laughs>